This Week in Accountable Care on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks is brought to you by National ACO. National ACO is one of 44 participants admitted to an exclusive group of next-generation accountable care organizations by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. The company is experiencing strong growth, was nation-leading in its first performance year, and has since logged five years of successful operations. National ACO is leading innovation in value-based healthcare, alternative payment models, and proactive population health management. Welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, the producer and moderator of the series, known to some on Twitter as at 2HealthGuru and the publisher of ACOWatch.com. I'm joined in the virtual studio today with National ACO co-founders and best of colleagues, Dr. Andre Berger, and Dr. Alex Foxman. For those of you interested in the next generation ACO model, as well as the accountable care industry writ large, this series is designed to educate and inform our audience by engaging best-in-class operators, thought leaders, and innovators. Now let me preview the bios of our co-hosts. Andre Berger, MD, is the Chief Executive Officer of National ACO, a primary care physician-owned and governed next-generation ACO. Located in Beverly Hills, California, with contracted primary care physician practices and attributed Medicare beneficiaries in multiple states. A natural leader, Dr. Berger is a renowned physician who has been practicing in Beverly Hills and Los Angeles, California since 1978. Dr. Berger is a prolific writer and researcher with comprehensive knowledge of managed care plans and a strong determination to enable patient-centered care and deliver on the promises of the triple aim. Alex Foxman, MD, is President and Chief Medical Officer of National ACO. Dr. Foxman has been practicing internal medicine and preventive care since 2003, over 14 years of practice. Dr. Foxman has started several successful and innovative medical practice models, including Mobile Physician Associates, a complete mobile group medical practice serving the needs of the homebound, frail elderly, and disabled populations of Southern California. This practice model has shown a significant improvement in the quality of patient care with double-digit reductions in overall medical costs. And with that introduction now, for our special guest, Don Crane. Since 2001, Don Crane, J.D., has served as president and CEO of CAPG, a national professional association composed of physician groups dedicated to coordinated, accountable care. It is the nation's largest trade association that explicitly promotes capitation as the payment model for its members, all of whom accept various forms of risk-based capitation or other population-based payment. CAPG member groups are in the forefront of national health care reform and represent the care model and payment methodologies adopted by federal legislation for the entire nation. CAPG's mission is to provide advocacy and education for accountable physician groups 
and to lead the coordinated care movement across the nation. In that quest, CAPG has embarked on an extensive educational effort to spread and scale the experience of its members in the delivery of risk-based coordinated care. A seasoned healthcare attorney, Crane has served as corporate counsel for several major integrated health systems. He speaks regularly on healthcare issues to a wide variety of physician groups, hospitals, and other professional meetings. He is a frequent guest lecturer on healthcare management issues to graduate students at major universities. And with that introduction out of the way, Drs. Berger and Foxman, the mic is yours. Well, thank you, Greg, uh, for those great introductions. I'm so excited to have Don on today um, because I've always looked at Don as a leader in, um, in the managed care industry and a galvanizer and, you know, really a Somebody is not only bright but very creative and um, has really been instrumental in uh, kind of improving the outlook, I would say, for um, managed care in terms of um, empowering or enabling or helping groups that um, are willing to enter into this um, be more successful through his organization. So. Kudos to you, Don. I'm very, very delighted to have you on here and, and share well, Andre, some of your thoughts with us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank so, you very much. I appreciate it, Don. And I, I'm not, I, and I say that, you know, really sincerely. So, but, but Don, uh, having said that, you know, being somebody like yourself who, who really has uh, been on the forefront, uh, almost evangelizing and uh, enabling kind of the Scaled risk assumption by um, medical entities such as uh, you know medical groups or single specialty groups or IPAs and you know other organizations over the years. Um, now that we get uh, to the current state of the marketplace, what in your mind are the critical near-term challenges that we're all facing to move this agenda forward? Well, heck, that's a great and timely question, Andre, because I think the first part of my answer will be that, you know, as we, as we speak in this very moment, you know, we've got the U.S. Congress uh, working repeal and replace. So the Senate is about to vote, I think, in the day or two on a couple of different laws, perhaps the BCRA or the ACHA, and there's talk about a skinny-down bill. Something is apt to come out of the U.S. Congress in the next couple of days that's in the repeal and replace mode. And it could clearly have huge consequences for physician groups around the country. I mean, huge impact on Medicaid, huge impact on the exchanges, uh, huge impact really on the insurance industry and the rules relating to it and so on. So it's a, it's a big deal, and we all watch with bated breath. And you know, we'll know a little more perhaps by about next Friday or something on that. But behind that, or maybe underneath it, and in some ways more important, that's an interesting that I should say that, but we still have the movement from volume to value continuing apace, frankly, in spite of the repeal and replace movement. So what do I mean by that? So we first really saw accountable care organizations as mentioned in the Affordable Care Act. And while that may be repealed, likely the provisions in it relating to ACOs will not be. 
And so they will survive. And then as we move forward in time, it was just a couple of years ago that we saw the Congress pass and the president sign the MACRA law, which repealed the uh, much derided sustained growth rate uh, formula for determining the physician fee schedule. And that's what grabbed all the headlines. But much, much more importantly to physician groups and ACOs and those that are interested in population health, there was the creation basically of new acronyms for us. So under MACRA, we now have uh, APMs, alternative payment models. So you can think ACOs and similar sorts of qualifying uh, organizations. And then also the MIPS, the uh, Medicare uh, Improvement Performance System that is very pay-performance-like. So we have those uh, provisions of that law providing a real kind of a tailwind for the whole movement to value and creating incentives basically for physicians and physician groups to move into population-based uh, payments. So you have the kind of twin pillars of um, the macro law, which is so important, and then also whatever comes out of repeal and replace. So I think those are what are looming in our current landscape right now. So as we, as we look at the macro law and, and, and see that the United States and especially CMS is trying to move our healthcare system into more of a risk-based system where there is more uh, reward to provide value services in a risk-based environment, how do you see other states that are maybe, or, or the rest of the nation that is maybe less progressive than uh, California, uh, engaging its risk readiness uh, by region? Do you, do you see any big differences nationally for, for risk readiness? Well, we do see differences, and it's interesting. Um, you know, CAPTCHA here recently did sort of, quote, unquote, go national, and we opened our doors to groups from all around the country. Our roots remain in California. About half of our members are California-based groups, but about half are from all over the country right now. And it is interesting, Alex, to see the sort of variability. Um, up in the Pacific Northwest, Washington State has a number of uh, really significant organizations that aren't just ready, but they're doing a really good job in uh, uh, population-based delivery. And you see that as well in Texas, I think, of WellMed, and you see it in Florida and in Colorado, there's a New West physician. So around the country, there's a shining examples of real readiness and significant sophistication. But there is also quite a lot of the opposite. So there's a fair number of newcomers into uh, risk-based care. Uh, we see them in various kinds of uh, nascent ACL programs and the like. So, And you see everything in between. But one thing you do see is a a genuine gradual movement from from fee-for-service into risk-based models um, it's happening it may have been slowed a little bit by the confusion of the recent election and the real repeal and replace but it's a function of the demand of payers governmental and private basically for a more efficient and higher quality system and so the movement's underway across the country very interesting to see Don, a uh, couple of things. Um, first of all, I have a couple of little subparts here in the question. Um, listening to, you, to, to the great um, answer you gave at the beginning, um, one thing you didn't kind of include in that, which I'm interested to hear about, is you didn't really talk about Medicare. You, you talked about Medicaid. You talked about you know, the commercial insurance market. 
and, you know, the ACA related to that. But you didn't really talk a lot about Medicare. And do you think that at this point, based upon what you've been listening to, hearing, observing, as far as Congress is concerned, do you think Medicare is kind of off the table at the moment and that will probably not be addressed in any kind of repeal uh, or replace? So here's an answer for you, Andre. Yes and no. <laughs> so I'm accurate in saying that the current repeal and replace law laws, the several, the House version and the Senate versions, don't touch Medicare, right? So they focus on Medicaid and the exchanges and the insurance industry. So that much is accurate. And so maybe Medicare is not on the table per se under this particular um, set of laws we're looking at this very week. But Medicare is very much on the minds of policymakers. So if you think back just, I don't know, six months ago when Paul Ryan and the Republican Party published their, I'll use the word manifesto, called um, A Better Way, they had very much had plans for Medicare. And that was to move Medicare into a kind of a premium support model. Now, they haven't undertaken that. That hasn't happened. So in a sense, Medicare isn't very much on the table, at least in terms of uh, 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 premium support. It is, however, in terms of Medicare Advantage, I think on the table for all of us because Medicare Advantage is a natural kind of almost, um, oh, I don't know what the word is, maybe cousin or corollary of the ACO movement that we see going on around the country. Some of the ACOs um, are developing all the know-how so they can somehow transition their populations into Medicare Advantage. Others are preferring Medicare Advantage. You know, it's about a third of the seniors in the country in MA. And then the single most important point, you asked a great question. I get to now kind of do a little advertisement for some good work that CAPG and my staff is doing, and that is this. We have asked CMS to recognize groups that are doing risk-based, good, coordinated care in Medicare Advantage as qualifying alternative payment models, advanced alternative pay models, within MACRA so that the physicians and the groups doing the good work in MA would get that recognition and with it the 5% bonus that is then payable over the Part B population. So trying to bring the silo that is MACRA and APMs um, closer together to the silo is that Medicare Advantage. Everybody has Medicare Advantage on their mind, I think, as they see this movement of, from volume to value. So it occupies a, it's a long-winded uh, answer, Andre, to say that it occupies an interesting uh, position sort of in the wings of the current conversation, and I think it's going to be in center stage pretty soon. Yeah, so, Don, just I, uh, just one little sub-part to that, because I've got my my wheels turning here um, because, you know, you very astutely, you know, refer to, to the tra transformation from uh, volume to value. But then the other thing I wanted you to comment on is the transformation from risk. And you know what I mean, because you've been, you've been at the risk game for as long as anybody the transformation from just risk to risk with value, because that's part of the discussion that, you know, really is not, I would say, front and center, but I think needs to be a very important part of that discussion, if you know what I mean. 
No, I do. I mean, so, you know, what, what do we mean when we say value, for example? And uh, to me, it's the triple aim, really, which is, you know, cost, quality, and, and, and service combined. Um, when we talk about, for example, the ACL movement, we see risk, and you see upside risk, you see downside risk. Sometimes you see shared risk models. Sometimes you see capitation, just professional capitation. Sometimes you see capitation that is both for the professional services and also the institutional services. So you see a lot of different flavors on the sort of financial side. But what I think you're getting to in part, Andre, and I agree with you, is there's, there's also the quality side here. So if you look at the ACO program and virtually all of the new value programs are built squarely on top of performance measurement and quality measurement. Now, it's a lot of work, and not everybody loves doing it, but clearly a component of the value movement is the improvement of population health. So all these programs have different measure sets by which population health is measured and managed and improved, and that's a part of the value movement, too. So it isn't just financial risk. It's also the greater goal of value and quality. Thank you. So, Don, we know that, uh, you know, the, the ACO concept nationally has, has, has exploded every year. It almost seems exponentially getting larger. In fact, currently, in 2017, there are now 570 uh, Medicare Accountable Care organizations that include Shared Savings Program, NextGen ACO Model, Comprehensive End-Stage Renal Disease Model, and so forth. But a small proportion of those are actually risk-based, and, and, and almost none are fully risk-based uh, currently. Where do you see the trajectory of ACOs going, and how do you see them, and at what point do you think you see them intersecting with full-risk models in not only Medicare but in other systems? Well, I think it's probably an iterative process. I mean, first off, I think for the most part we're talking about um, the Medicare ACO program, and it's probably well to mention that of the hundreds and hundreds of ACOs around the country, many of them, are in the commercial side. So California's got scores and scores of them. You guys are among the best of the Medicare um, ACOs because you've moved into the next-gen program where I think there's only 44 or something and more sophisticated, better features, a little higher level of risk, as you've mentioned. I think there's downside as well as upside depending upon the model. So you guys are sort of in the vanguard of that. I think others will follow. It takes time. They've got to get good at managing care and get a grip and a grasp of really how their population is doing and how they're delivering the care. And as they grow more comfortable, they'll move from just um, upside sharing to also downside risk. And with that additional risk, there will be higher levels of reward uh, and also, me also meaning higher levels of profit. So that will happen, I think, over time in an in incremental fashion. I do think, as I say that, though, there are, you know, barriers. And um, you guys have done managed care for quite a long time, and I think you, you know as well as I that the current ACO program, good as it is, it was and is the creature, uh, creation of a political process. And it's built on a, you know, Part B fee-for-service original Medicare chassis, meaning it's still at bottom a fee-for-service model. Uh, much improved, but still a fee-for-service model. That's a problem that, that needs to probably be addressed. So, too, is the fact that patients 
are allowed to go and see any physician they want to in or out of network. There is not a closed network, making it hard for even sophisticated groups to track and trace the care they're giving to their patients and track the quality and the cost. So some of the underlying um, structural features of the ACO program, I think, retard its potential. And so I think we're going to need to have new and better models. Uh, CMS is going to need to generate them. I think we can propose them ourselves. Um, Groups around the country capture you guys. Um, My very comments about Medicare Advantage being recognized are a good example of a of a new model that might be recognized. We need new and better models to attract physicians because it takes a pretty brave and then savvy um, set of managers to success, succeed in the current ACO program. You guys are good examples of that, but not everybody has succeeded, and um, we're just going to need new and better models, I think, to accelerate it. Don, one thing um, I did want to comment on. One thing I did want to comment on is is the the comment on of um, having our people service beneficiaries having, so to speak, open access. And and I yep. personally believe that that opportunity for open access, though it is difficult to track, though it does lead to potentially patients that uh, may uh, have leakage to other more expensive types of uh, healthcare um, areas. I do believe that it can, in the right situation and, and structured properly, breed quite a bit of increased quality in care. Uh, as an example, patients come to me in a fee-for-service environment because I take great care of them, because they like to come to me and because they, they have faith in, in the services I provide. In a fee-for-service market, they could easily go to the doctor down the hall or the doctor down the street. They have that choice as, as opposed to many times in full capitated environments where there's a very narrow network. And that puts greater emphasis for myself, my practice, and my staff to provide the highest quality of care and services that we could provide to show our patients that we are the best qualified and and the best practices for them to come to. So so that, in a way, I think differentiates what's happening right now in in some of the uh, risk-based ACO models, such as the next-gen versus a fully capitated model out there. So I think you hit on uh, the sort of $64 challenge, and that's to make the services you deliver sticky so the patients don't want to migrate out of network. And some are, have succeeded in doing that, and others have had some, some, some challenge with it. Um, a thought that we've proposed is that um, some kind of differential copay uh, and deductible uh, design be established, much like what is known in some areas as the point-of-service plan, where patients pay more in the way of copayments if they go out of network and less if they stay in network, something to try and force them to stay in network but allow them to have the complete freedom they want. Uh, but, if, but if, Alex, if you can get them to get there just by virtue of your excellent service, then you know, no, wonder, no wonder you guys are successful. And that, well, that would be great. Uh, uh, Don, um, I think what Alice is talking about is, I guess, uh, and the stickiness that you may be referring to is something that we have always called the doctor-patient relationship. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of that has to do with culture, and, um, and, and the culture has changed a lot um, in the last number of years. You've seen it. I've seen it um, in terms of the way... Um, 
beneficiaries, if you want to call them patients, um, look at the relationship with their physicians. Some, some, somehow there's been a metamorphosis there. I'm not sure it's always been for the better. But in any case, I think the, one of the questions I have for you is, um, how do you see culture, um, demographic culture, including, of course, age, aging of the population, and the influence of um, socioeconomics, how do you see that reflecting that, how do you see that influencing that stickiness and really challenging, in many cases, the economics challenging the ability to optimize that doctor-patient relationship? So I think, I think mostly what I think is that seniors in time tend almost always to have multiple chronic diseases, and they need coordinated care. They need the help of a primary care physician to help them navigate through a very complex system, help them find specialists that they need, coordinate the services, operate out of hopefully a unified medical record, bring rationality to everything. The 26-year-old surfer who sprained his ankle while climbing up the cliff, you know, after a day of surfing, probably doesn't need that level of coordination. And so, so as you look at sort of the demographics, back to, you know, using your word, probably the, 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 the population that's best um, um, served, I think, by the kind of coordinated care we're talking about on this, on this uh, podcast is, seen, is the senior population. Um, though, you know, clearly there's ACOs in the commercial world. I think that um, the older population with its higher acuity, if I can use that word, really is best served by the kind of coordinated care that we're talking about now. Uh, I think that's my main answer for you, Andre. Did I get to your question? Yeah, perfectly so. I, I was okay. I was actually hoping you'd say that. So that that I okay. agree with that entirely. And um, and then Alex, uh, do you have anything else? Because I just I have one other thing that I would like to ask. Yeah, please go ahead, Andre. Go ahead. So so one of the things that is of concern to me, you know, when you have when you're trying to transform, and you're and you're trying to be innovative, you know, you got to give things a chance. Um, to work out, and, and there's some time involved here. And one of my concerns in terms of, you know, how we transform is, you know, how do we, with all these different percolating models and ideas, you know, how do we kind of put all this stuff together and give it enough time for the, you know, kind of the best, shall, shall we say, of the best innovative ideas to kind of gel out and be identified and then, become kind of more mainstream. Uh, my worry is that we're not giving things enough time, perhaps, to show proof of concept. What do you think about that? Well, I think that, um, you know, it does take time. Rome wasn't built in a day. And for new neophyte organizations to bring on the infrastructure and the know-how and the expensive IT and the personnel et cetera, et cetera, to really manage a population well, that's new and different for a fair number of organizations. And no, that's not going to happen overnight. And it will take years. And, uh, you know, we've seen that in California, as many of my members and your colleagues have been doing this kind of thing for two decades, three decades, and so on. So patience is a virtue, and we're going we're gonna to need that. So I would say that. But then at 
the risk of arguing a little bit with you, Andre, I'll also say that that you know, as I look at the Innovation Center, whose work I applaud and, and so forth, I do raise the question of, look, if there, if there are existing models that are working well around the country, and of course I posit that there are, then in that event, I think part of what we ought to be doing now is identifying them and slavishly imitating them. Because I'm impatient in some ways. I worry that if we don't bend the trend and get the spiraling healthcare costs under control, we're going to get all manner of legislative repercussions. There'll be sequesters, there'll be physician cuts, et cetera, et cetera. I think the smart physicians that you guys are and that comprise CAPG uh, know how to do this well. You guys know how to do this well, and there's groups within CAPG that do it well. And I would say CMS, CMMI, identify them and find ways to scale that model. I don't know if it's development funds, but you know, let's look at what works and let's um, let's let's imitate it fast. That's also I Don, that's agree. a great, great way to close this amazing, amazing discussion. I want to thank you so much for adding such great insight, such smart thoughts, and we hope to have you back for more. I'll be glad to do it thank anytime. You, it's fun talking with you guys. And there you have it. That'll be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, Don Crane, CEO of CAPG, for his time and insights today. Do follow CAPG on Twitter via at CAPG Voice and on the web via www.capg.org. Follow National ACO on the web via www.nacomso.com and on Twitter via at NACOMSO. Until we meet again on this week for uh, of Accountable Care, for Drs. Berger and Foxman, this is Greg Masters, your moderator, saying bye now. Sweet the streets I